Welcome to another episode of Pilates Elephants with your host, Raphael Bender. Today, I want to talk about how to massively simplify your thinking about movement. And the way to do this, I'm going to make a case, is to become a movement optimist. Now, we all know that there are two kinds of people in the world, those who love coffee and then those who are wrong, uh, those who love pineapple on pizza and those who are wrong, those who love dogs and those who are wrong. Anyway, dear listener, <laughs> we know that there are two kinds of people in the world and there are two kinds of movement thinkers in the world as well. And I'm going to uh, call them the two different views of movement, that is, the fearful view and the optimistic view. Now, the fearful view sees exercise as inherently dangerous. Bodies are fragile and unless we continually emphasize safety, alignment, and muscle activation, our clients will almost certainly injure themselves. The other view, let's call it the movement optimist view, the optimistic view, holds that movement is inherently beneficial for the human body and that humans have an innate movement intelligence, which enables them, enables us to learn and improve our movement skill with even minimal instruction. Now, the fearful view assumes that our conscious brain, there are a couple of, there are a couple of assumptions underneath the, the fearful view, and I want to tease them out. The fearful view assumes that our conscious brain can know the correct, in quotes, way to do a movement safely, whereas our poor old premotor cortex will almost inevitably get it wrong if left, if left to its own devices. Therefore, we have to think, think, think about every movement. Go, prefrontal cortex, go, think harder, think about that movement. Dogs don't think about movement. Neither do cats or babies or horses or fish or any other animal besides Pilates instructors or maybe maybe physical therapists and a few others do as well. But the vast majority of living beings, including most humans, but certainly all other animals, don't think about movement. Now, we look at, and Joseph Pilates himself looked at animals like he talks about cats and looking at watching how cats move. And you know, we, we all look at certain animals and admire their grace. Those animals don't think about movement. <laughs> they just move. They're, the non-conscious parts of their brain, their, their premotor cortex, their motor cortex, organize their movement. They have they move in a goal directed fashion. They want to you know get to a certain place. They want to chase a rabbit. They want to you know climb a tree. So they they their their conscious brain or even maybe instinct directs them at a goal, and their their mo the motor parts of their brain automatically and by automatically I mean outside of conscious awareness organizes the body 
to move in such a way as to achieve that goal. It's not normal in nature to think about movement. It just, you know, when I think about it like this, it just seems bizarre that (laughs) we as Pilates instructors and maybe physical therapists and a couple of personal trainers and yogis as well, have this view that we must consciously control movement. It's like we're some tiny, you know, minority of beings alive on this planet have this belief. It just seems ludicrous. The other billions of beings, you know, don't hold this view and they move just fine. Now, the fearful view is also just not supported by evidence. Um, For a start, movement is not dangerous, right? That's one of the assumptions of this fearful view is that movement's inherently dangerous. But On the contrary, exercise has been studied extensively in a massive number of people across diverse populations. Uh, You know, when I was doing my master's, they made us read study after study after study on different exercise interventions and population level studies on exercise in different uh, ethnic groups and life stages, et cetera. Uh, And it's been found to be consistently not only safe but highly beneficial for almost every health outcome you can think of from cancer to arthritis to postnatal depression to diabetes to osteoporosis low back pain bipolar disorder the list goes on and on and on and on almost forever of the conditions that exercise either reduces the chance of you getting the condition or increases the chance of you recovering from the condition or reduces the symptoms and impact the condition has on your life or all three. We just have at this point, you know, literally mountains of evidence. You know, if we piled up the, the research papers, they would form a mountain. We have literally mountains of evidence of not only the safety of exercise, but the necessity of exercise. Now, I want to talk about the inverse of this view for a moment, because, uh, you know, something that I think is very under considered is the risk of not exercising. We know from this, you know, from this self-same research on exercise, we look at people, you know, who are, and we look at people who are more active versus less active, and we look at how long they live. We find that people who are more active live longer. We look at people who do strength training versus people who don't do strength training. We see how long they live. We see people who do strength training live longer. When we measure cardiorespiratory fitness, we find, and then we follow people for decades, we find that the higher your level of fitness as measured in a treadmill test to exhaustion, the longer you live. When we measure people's strength, whether we measure it by hand grip dynamometer or you know, leg press strength, there are lots of ways we can measure it, you know, how many push-ups you can do. And then we follow people and see, see how long they live. We find the stronger you are by by any measure of strength, the longer you live. 
when we look at you know pre and postnatal women with and and fetuses and babies and we look at those who exercise during and after pregnancy versus those who don't exercise or exercise less we find that women who do exercise during pregnancy and after have healthier pregnancies you know fewer uh illnesses during pregnancy like uh, gestational diabetes and gestational hypertension, less postnatal depression, quick, shorter labors, fewer cesareans, more uh, healthy babies, uh, you know, we less uh, prenatal weight gain, uh, you know, like there are you know, I could just I could spend hours talking about all of the 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 positive health outcomes that result from exercise. You know, and then as you know, dear listener, the psychological benefits are also massive and possibly even you know more impactful for a lot of people. You know, it exercise reduces bipolar disorder symptoms, it reduces depressive symptoms, it reduces symptoms of anxiety, it induces sense of feeling of well being, it can reduce pain, like it improves sleep. Right? Now let's flip all of that. When you don't exercise, you feel more depressed. You feel more anxious. You don't sleep as well. You, 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 if you, you gain more weight, you have more pain. You don't live as long. You get more cardiovascular disease, more atherosclerosis, have a more chance, have more chance of a stroke or a heart attack, heart failure. You have more chance of getting a, you know, an array of different cancers. When you don't exercise, you have more chance of cognitive, early cognitive decline and dementia. And if you already have cognitive decline or dementia, when you don't exercise, it progresses faster. This is just another way of saying the positive benefits of exercise. These are the negative impacts of not exercising. These are the risks of not exercising. So there, the risks of not exercising include significant harms to mental health, reduced quality of life, and reduced quantity of life. And yet, we very rarely focus on these things when we talk about exercise and risk. We're always focused on the risk of widening someone's diastasis if we strengthen their abs, which is not a real thing. But we, we're hyper-focused on these, on these you know, risks of, you know, if you do the exercise wrong, you'll injure yourself. Well, think a bit, let's zoom out from that until we can't see the earth anymore. Let's zoom out till we just see the Milky Way, right? The, in the span of somebody's life, regularly exercising will probably add five years to their life. And not only that, not only years, it'll add more quality 
to all of their gears. Better mental health, better physical health, better capacity, you know, staying independent longer into old age, you know, less time in hospital, less health care, like uh, more, uh, more, uh, less cognitive decline, you know, all of the, you know, better function, better flexibility, <laughs> better strength, better fitness, more, more ability to do the things they love. Like these are the things that we're putting at risk if we put the fear of exercise into our clients and they worry that they won't, they'll hurt themselves if they do it wrong. So I think this is where the fearful view gets it wrong in the most dangerous way because the fearful view, although, you know, paradoxically it's concerned with safety, paradoxically it ignores, you know, in order to increase the supposed safety of somebody from, say, you know, widening their diastasis or ag- exacerbating their back pain or overstraining their disc or something like that, in order to prevent that and avoid that, instead they take on a much greater risk of atherosclerosis, stroke, heart attack, cognitive decline, depression, anxiety, etc., quite happily. And to me, that just seems like a crazy exchange, a crazy exchange, especially considering that the mountains of evidence that we have that exercise is not, in fact, dangerous. It doesn't widen diastasis. It's not dangerous for your discs. It doesn't make back pain worse. It helps back pain. It has no effect on diastasis. It may or may not help discs. We have lab studies showing it possibly could, but then we don't have any in vivo studies in humans. But it doesn't hurt them. So the fearful view gets it wrong in thinking that we're avoiding these supposed risks, which are in almost all instances not actual risks, but ignores the massive life-altering and life-threatening risks of not moving. And when people are fearful of movement, they don't move. A study I uh, that came out just recently in the last month on it was an ultrasound study of women with diastasis, um, uh, postpartum women with diastasis. And uh, the authors, just in an aside, in the comment in their discussion, said uh, that they had to decline a large number of women who applied to participate in the study because these women who applied didn't have diastasis, even though they thought they did. And so these women were under the mistaken belief that they had diastasis and therefore were only willing to exercise under supervision of research scientists investigating diastasis. They they were too fearful to go exercise in their local gym or Pilates class. These were perfectly healthy women. <laughs> too fearful to move, losing all of those benefits, putting themselves of putting themselves at risk of all of those harms. This is crazy. And these these, these effects are, are very real. 
All right. So I think finally the fearful view gets it wrong in thinking our conscious mind knows best and our premotor cortex, you know, doesn't know what to do. Um, and, you know, with this, I guess, blind spot of ignoring the massive dangers and risks of not moving and of creating fear in our clients and ourselves around movement, you know, that that is fu- fundamentally, you know, where I think this fearful view uh, causes problems. Now, in reality, in a Pilates class, you don't have to worry about safety. Now, aside from, you know, workplace health and safety, things like not leaving exposed power cables <laughs> lying around or broken glass on the floor or, you know, having people balance precariously on one leg on a reformer with no springs on it or something, okay, you know, basic, you know, sanity aside, <laughs> okay, as long as you're teaching the class, you know, like any reasonable person would, <laughs> in terms of like if somebody's exercise technique is, quote, incorrect, you have you don't need to have any concerns about safety. There is zero evidence that, you know, bending your spine or letting your knees go in when you squat or pronating your feet or not activating your glutes or hyperextending your knees or you know, any of that stuff, there's zero evidence that it causes injury. Now, of course, you may have someone in your class who's, you know, previously dislocated their patella in a certain position. Sorry, so great, avoid that position. That makes sense for that person. But as a general rule, what I'm going to encourage you to do, or what I I do, (laughs) and what will massively simplify your movement thinking is to adopt the movement optimist view, the optimistic view. And the optimistic view says that the body has this innate intelligence, you know, and I'm not getting all spiritual and, you know, pixie dust here. I'm talking about the premotor cortex is really freaking smart because it's got about 4 million years of evolution (laughs) that has developed it to be really freaking clever at planning movements, right? You are descended from tens of thousands of generations of ancestors whose premotor cortexes worked really well and they were able to hunt and gather and farm and, you know, do all of the things they needed to do in order to pass on their genes to you, right? Because I bet you 100,000 years ago, <laughs> there were no Pilates instructors walking around to, you know, teach people to, to hunt with a straight spine <laughs> or, you know, dig roots out with a straight spine. <laughs> and yet your ancestors, you know, managed to, to live long enough to pass on their genes to you. And so you are descended from a long line of very successful movers. And so are your clients. And you don't have to tell people how to move because when you're you're a movement optimist, you know they'll figure it out as long as they understand what success looks like because they've got 10,000 generations of successful movers behind them and a very smart premotor cortex. So all you have to do is just articulate the goal and then sit back and let them figure it out and give them feedback every so often if they're getting really stuck. And your default position as a movement optimist becomes you assume a movement is safe 
until presented with compelling evidence otherwise. Your default position is you assume the client is smart and will figure it out and you only have to help them when they're stuck for a prolonged period. So you don't have to worry about safety or micromanaging your clients or your own movement. You can just let them and yourself move and know it's all good. So what should you be thinking about if you're not thinking about safety and you're not thinking about correct technique? Well, think about load, range of motion, fatigue, motivation, goals. These are the things that will get your clients and you results. Manage load, increase load until they can only do 10 reps and the last one's really hard. Work them through full range. Get them to the point where they're nearly but not completely fatigued. Use you know, motivational, uh, you know, learn motivational strategies, you know, set goals, talk about the benefit of doing this exercise. Why is this going to, how is this going to help them in a way that's meaningful to this client? Those are the things to think about. So dear listener, I hope uh, you <laughs> found this at, at the very least amusing. Uh, how to massively simplify your thinking about movement really when you take on the movement optimist view, a lot of things just disappear and you can set down that baggage. That's been my experience. And I just don't think about safety. You know, I, I like I said, I, I worry about ele- live electrical wires <laughs> and balancing on one leg on a reform with no springs on it. I do think about those things and leaving glass on the floor of the studio, but I don't worry about someone, you know, doing a movement, quote, wrong and hurting themselves. I worry about load. I worry about range of motion. I worry about fatigue management. I worry about goals and motivation. Well, I, I don't worry about them. I mean, you know, I pay attention to them. But I don't pay any attention to, you know, quote, good or bad technique. And I don't pay any attention to, you know, trying to tell my clients to consciously control their movement. Quite the opposite. I try and distract them and let their non-conscious brain do the work. All right, dear listener, hope you found that amusing, enlightening, helpful, (laughs) thought-provoking, and uh, much love, and I'll see you in the next one. After two exercise science degrees and over a decade and a half of reading research daily, I've condensed all the current science on rehab into a program called the Clinical Exercise Specialist Rehabilitation. Inside the program, I'll teach you to do three things. One, deeply understand how the body works. Two, confidently and expertly rehab literally any client. And three, get results for your clients. So ultimately, your clients tell their friends and you become known as the go-to expert in your area. This program is completely unlike any education you've done before, even if you've studied with us before, because of the way we've built the learning design. It's an online, flexible, skill-based learning program, which means you keep doing the skills under supervision until you're good at them. It's more of a mentorship model than a traditional course model. So 
rather than rushing through the content and having sort of one go at everything, you actually just practice live and we give you feedback and guidance and we dialogue and explore concepts together until you're highly skilled and confident. We just keep working the material until you get it. It's not rushed at all. It's not about ticking off the content. It's about engaging, practicing and applying it until you own it. This is a life-changing program, not some weekend certification. I've put my heart and soul into building this, and I can't wait to share it with you and help you discover your genius for anatomy and rehab. Now, because of the highly interactive nature of this program, we're only taking on 12 students worldwide. The program starts on March the 1st, and the first 12 qualified people to apply will be allowed to enroll. So if you're interested in learning more, click the link in the show notes and download the course guide or go to breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification menu in our link in the top menu. That's breathe-education.com and click on the clinical certification link in the top menu.